If you've joined us over the last uh, couple of weeks, we've been walking through the life of Elijah, and uh, up to this point, it's been really significant. It's been actually quite spectacular in terms of what it is that Elijah has done. He, he kind of storms onto the scene, confronts Ahab, says, look, you're, you're not following God's way. So until I pray for rain, there is not going to be rain. And then what ensues is three and a half years of drought. And in, in that time, Elijah goes and he um, he hides uh, by a brook so that he's fed by God and then he goes off into, into the wilderness and he uh, meets a widow who doesn't have any food. He's got a little bit of flour, a little bit of oil and, and a son and, and, and they're working through the drought and, and he asks for some bread and she says, I, I can't do anything about that. I don't have anything. And he promises that, that, that her food, her, her supplies won't run out until the drought is gone. And so she begins to feed him and, and year after year, year, her flour, her oil doesn't disappear. And then, and then her son gets sick and dies. And Elijah, in this miraculous way, um, heals her son, raises him from the dead. And then at about the three-year mark or three-and-a-half-year mark, uh, God calls him to go back to the king Ahab and then confront Ahab and the prophets of Baal. The, the, the prophets that, um, that, that have taken the people away from uh, worshiping God. And so he confronts them on Mount Carmel. We, we know this story well. He, the, he makes kind of fun of the, the prophets of Baal because they're, they're trying to get the, the, the God of, of the, the storm, the, the God of thunder to rain down fire as he ought to be able to onto their altar and, and they can't do it. And then in this miraculous moment, Elijah prays to God that God would reveal himself to turn the people's hearts back to himself and fire comes down from heaven and consumes everything on the altar. And then Elijah goes up to the mountain, he prays and rain comes. And then by the hand of God, he runs before the chariot of Ahab to the, to, the, to the capital of Israel in hopes that God's word would come true. And I think after we've read these, these stories, we've kind of digested what it is that God's revealing about himself and about Elijah in, in the stories. I think the, the last thing that we would think is, oh, I'm, I'm like Elijah. You know, when, when I look at the way that Elijah... It, is in the world and what he does, yeah, that, that fits me. And so when we come across a passage like James chapter 5, verse 17, it strikes a weird chord because James, as, as he's reflecting on elders and prayer and healing, he says this, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. And we might be like, Elijah having a nature like ours. That doesn't quite fit up to this point. But then we get 1 Kings 19, the, the, the passage that we're going to look at today. And where it doesn't turn out the way that Elijah thought. And so he turns and runs in fear and despair 
and questions what's happening in the world, and God needs to reveal himself quite miraculously to Elijah. And I think that's where we start to see that Elijah's nature is exactly like ourselves. So as we kind of go through the story of 1 Kings 19, I think we're going to see three three things. We're going to see Elijah despairing in difficulty. We're going to see that God divinely uh, intervenes with a divine antidote. And then we're going to see impossible grace displayed. So first, despairing in difficulty. Look, like we, we need to understand that Elijah's not doing something wrong. He's not... Um, he doesn't, he doesn't have a twisted desire here. He genuinely wants good, righteous, noble things, God-exalting things. His prayer on the Mount of Carmel, as, as he's standing on that mount, what, what he is asking, God to reveal himself in this miraculous way, is not so that Elijah is made great, but that God is made great. In 1 Kings 18, verse 37, just a few verses before our passage, his prayer is this, Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. See, Elijah's prayer, Elijah's desire is that the people would know that God is God, that Yahweh is God. That's what Elijah's name means. Yahweh is God. And his heart's desire, his his whole bent, his whole purpose is that the people would see that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is God of the universe. And he wants to see this miraculous thing so that there's confirmation that the people's hearts have turned from worshiping Baal and other gods to worshiping God. A righteous desire. And sure enough, as, as the story goes on, the people say, Yahweh is God. And it seems like they are going to turn from their Ways And then he goes onto the mount and he prays for rain and, and rain comes. It says in 1 Kings 18, right at the end in 45 and 46. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind. And there was a great rain. Now you can imagine the joy. Because Elijah had, had promised that there wouldn't be any rain until it was by his word, and then, and then he prays, and now the, the sky is dark, and there is a torrential downpour. And in his joy and exuberance by the Spirit, he runs before Ahab towards the city of Jezreel, where Jezebel would be, where Ahab is going. And he says, and, he rode, and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garments and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. And you can imagine that Elijah is sitting here going, yes, finally, three and a half years. It took three and a half years of drought. It took three and a half years of me doubting and seeing the suffering around me and, 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 and hoping that God would move and, and praying and, and wanting people to see that, that, that God is God and, and that they would turn from their ways. Finally, finally that's happened. This miraculous thing has happened. I've seen people on the mount turn from, from, from Baal. And so he, he in joy, runs towards the city. And yet, what he encounters is devastating, is depressing, throws him into despair. 
Because when Ahab goes, when Ahab the king, the representative of the people, goes to his wife Jezebel, who has introduced all of these idols, and tells her what Elijah has done, her response is to send a messenger that says, if by tomorrow I have not done to you what you've done to my prophets, which is kill them, then have it be done unto me. You see, all of Elijah's hope that this, that this would turn her heart, that this would turn the leadership's heart, that Ahab would not be weak anymore, that Jezebel would not be evil anymore, and that, that leadership would change their mind and the people would do so have been dashed on the rocks. And so in 1 Kings 19, verse 4, we have Elijah run away. He runs from Jezreel, which is in the north, and he runs all the way down to the very south of Israel, as far away as he possibly can. And then it says this, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness from that point, so yet further, and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. See, he's reached a point of despair. Now, Elijah knows that, that in that culture, in that time, he knows that he doesn't have the authority to take his own life. He's not saying, oh, I'm going to commit suicide here. What he's saying is, God, I am so done. Strike me down. I have nothing left. I'm finished. I can't take it anymore. I thought we had won a decisive victory. I want what is good and yet failure. Evil is too much. I have smashed my head against that concrete wall too often and I am done. You might as well just take my life. Look, this, this, uh, this despair, this, this difficulty actually distorts Elijah's perspective on reality. He is, he is so out of sorts that as we move through the story and, and he goes and meets with God, we learn in verse uh, 10 of our chapter, that when God asks him, Elijah, what are you doing here? And God repeats that again in verse 14. And, and Elijah says exactly the same thing. He says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left and they seek my life so I can take it, or to take it away. God, the, the people have abandoned you. They've killed all of the prophets, and I'm the only one left. I'm the only faithful one. But you see, Elijah is actually forgetting something. Elijah is forgetting that when he went to see Ahab, he ran into Obadiah, 
one of Ahab's chief servants. And Obadiah in 1 Kings 18 verse 13, as he's explaining the, the perils of the circumstances therein, says this to Elijah, Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I had hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in caves and fed them with bread and water. You see, in, in, in Elijah's despair, in, in, in Elijah's defeat, in his disillusionment, in his struggle and challenge, the truth has been distorted and he has a, a, a twisted perspective on reality. In his mind, he thinks, I'm the only faithful one left. I cannot do this on my own. And he's forgotten that there are others who are faithful. And so he is devastatingly disappointed. He can't see clearly. He can't, he can't see God's work. He can't, he can't see evil being defeated. He can't, he can't manage the, just taking the next step. What am I going to do? I'm done. I'm as good as my dead ancestors. You might as well put me in the grave. And I think in this moment, we actually start to taste Elijah as having our nature. That maybe as we sit here, we think about our marriages, about the goodness that God designed in it, and that it's supposed to reflect the gospel in some way, and that He created it for life, but for whatever circumstance, it feels like we are slogging through the mud, our spouse isn't getting it, we keep falling, we, we get angry and frustrated, we desire to have this, this marriage relationship that, that reflects God's goodness and glory, that, that reflects the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is built on the foundation of His power, and yet day after day we struggle. And we're like, it's enough. I know it's good. I want what's good. But it just doesn't come. There doesn't seem to be a solution. Or maybe we're sitting here as a, as a single person desiring that marriage. Seeing its goodness and, and the value that it brings and the joy that it brings and the companionship that it brings. And we, we read passages in, in Genesis where it's not good for man to be alone and we long for that in our hearts and we, and we see successful marriages. And we go, I long for that kind of companionship, that joy, that, that relationship. But we don't have it. I think, man, I'm so lonely. I'm the only one. Or maybe we long for someone in your life to know Christ. A son, daughter, spouse, sibling. We spent decades praying for their salvation. And it seems like it falls on deaf ears. It seems like evil prevails. It seems like no matter what apologetic argument or gracious action we do, this person continues to reject Christ and the gospel. 
And we sit exhausted, saying, God, where are you in all of this? Despairing, nothing will change. You, will, you won't change anything. You haven't changed anything. I've tried to be faithful. I've tried to do what's right. Now I'm just going to lay under this tree and be done. Nothing's working. Oh, maybe when James says, Ah, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, we can say, yeah. Yeah. And we despair in that difficulty. And so often then our perspective distorts just like Elijah's. We start to see our marriages in a way that they shouldn't be seen or we start to see us as the victim and, 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 and we start to blame others and we start to shake our fists at God thinking, no, 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 this can't be the right design or we start to look outside of our marriage or, or, or the marriage that we long for, we start to distort it and be like, I'm the only one like this and I can't do this and singleness is bad and there's no value here or we can look at Uh, our unbelieving friends and family, and we can say, God is not working. And our perspective is distorted. But our gracious God does not leave Elijah there in his despair and in his disillusionment. No, no, he meets him there and brings a divine antidote to despair. In our passage in 1 Kings chapter 19, in verse 11 through 13, God calls Elijah to come to the Mount of Sinai or Mount Horeb. That's the same mountain that Moses went up on. And God passed by Moses and Moses' face glowed. And the people couldn't look at him. He had to wear a veil over his face because because the glory of God was so intense that even as God was passing by and and, and Moses only got the end of, of his robe, that his face shone basically like the sun. So God calls Elijah to that, that same spot, this despairing soul. It's totally interesting that Moses also despaired for his life, that when he was called to lead the people of God, at one point in time, he turns to God and he says, you should just take my life, just like Elijah. And so Elijah comes to the mount where God revealed himself to the people of Israel and specifically to Moses. And then God says, and he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, exactly the same words as Moses. Exactly the same words as Moses. And a great and strong wind tore the mountain and broke it in pieces, the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? 
See, the, the antidote that Elijah is looking for is an answer, is a sign. He wants to see Jezebel turn. He wants to see the people turn. But what God provides is something totally different. He calls him to himself and he shows himself to Elijah. God does not give Elijah answers, not yet. No, 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 no. What he does is he reveals himself. God calls Elijah to the mountain and then says, I'm going to pass by before you. And then there's this giant wind. Like we're not talking hurricane kinds of winds that uproot trees and things like that. This is a kind of wind that picks up boulders and smashes them against the sides of mountains where it feels like the mountain is going to come down. But God is not in the wind. And then an earthquake, but God is not there. And then in fire, and God is not there. And what God is saying to Elijah is, I am no Baal. See, Baal is the God of the storm, of, of, of fire and wind and lightning. He is, he is that God. God is saying to Elijah, I am no Baal. Yes, I showed you that I was going to accomplish my purposes by bringing fire on Mount Carmel, a different mountain. And I was faithful to your prayer. But I, I, I control the wind. I control these things. But I'm not in them. No, no, no. I am much grander than that. And I will come to you in a whisper. You will have to cover your face. See, God's antidote to Elijah's depression, to his despair, is himself. And this is God's pattern. Many of us are familiar with the story of Job, where Job loses everything. Because of a conversation between Satan and, and God, uh, Satan is allowed to take away from Job almost everything that he has, just not his life. And Job despairs and wrestles with God. And the entire book of Job, which is 42 chapters long, is dedicated to him and his friends discussing, is it sin? Like, what is it? Is God good? How can that be? And Job continues to talk to God, like, how could this be? I think I'm a righteous man. I want answers from you, God. And for 38 chapters, he does that. And then in chapter 38, God finally comes and he answers Job. And what you would expect is you would expect a why. Job, I've done this to show people that I control even evil. Or that I can see this devastation and bless you further or to teach you a lesson about your sinfulness, even though you try and do what's right. No, 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 no. God does none of those things. What God does is he starts asking questions. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Job 38.4. From whose womb did the ice come forth? And who has given birth to the frost of heaven? Verse 29. Who has put wisdom in the inward parts of God? or given understanding to the mind, verse 36. And God goes on 
and on. Do you feed that person? Do you hold the sand here? Do you know how many stars are in the sky? Right, I do, Job. You know what the answer is? The answer is look at me. In your despair, in your suffering, in your difficulty, turn your eyes to the mountain. Look where your help comes from. Remind yourself of who God is. And so he does with Elijah. Elijah, come to my mountain. I will pass by you and I will remind you who I am. And isn't that what God does in our despair? In our need, while we were still sinners, while we were off the beaten path, while we were turned in on ourselves, causing ourselves harm, rebelling against God and wondering, why is the world so broken? What did God do? He revealed himself in Christ Jesus. And Jesus says, I, I and the Father are one. I do the things my Father does. I've come to reveal my, uh, the Father through myself. I've come to show you what that looks like. And then when the disciples are fearful in the upper room because they're, they're scared of, of, of what's going to happen, Jesus reveals himself to them. And then as they're waiting, when Jesus has gone to heaven, God sends his spirit. That's how God works. In our despair, in our difficulty, God reveals himself. And in so doing, he reveals his providence. Because as we read on in 1 Kings chapter 19, starting in verse 15, after God has had this question and answer with, Joe, uh, with uh, Elijah, and he hasn't quite gotten it, the Lord still hasn't answered him. He said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah repeats himself, I'm the only one. And God's response is this. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abba Malhola, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So God, instead of answering his question directly and saying, no, 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 listen, listen, I, I've got a plan. I've got things going. You just have to trust me. Here's what your next steps is. He's just like, look, you're going to go anoint somebody. They're going to take care of it. My plan has not failed. I am God. You're going to go anoint a king outside of Israel. That's how far my authority goes. And he's going to come and he's going to punish those who do not know me as God. And those he misses, I'm going to anoint another king in Israel who will then take care of the rest. And he, those he doesn't, Elisha will take care of. Elijah, my plan is certain. You think Jezebel has the upper hand because she sits behind a wall and she makes threats through a messenger? No, 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 no. I control history. You need to remember that. Not one king... Not one prophet, not one messenger moves without my hand in it. So what I'm asking you to do is just be obedient. 
I'll make sure it happens. See, the divine antidote to despair is to remember who God is, that he is good and gracious and powerful, and that he has not abandoned us, and that his purposes and plans will come to fruition. Or as Romans 8.28 would put it, and we know that for those who love God, that is, those of us who desire good marriages but don't see a way forward, those of us that want relationships that are meaningful and, and, and don't seem to have that, those of us that long for those we love to come to Christ, we know that for those who love God, all things, all the garbage in your life, all of the difficulty in your life, all of the concrete walls that you have been smashing your head against the wall for, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. They all work for good. Paul goes on to say, and those whom He has predestined, that is those who have been called to be Christ followers, those of us who long to see the righteousness of God in our lives by the power of His Spirit. Those whom He's predestined, He's also called. And those whom He's called, He's also justified. And those whom He's justified, He's also glorified. There it is. All of these are past tense things. You desire to honor God in, in your marriages and in your relationships and in your, in your witness, in your work. God says, it's all done. All the things that are happening, I have. Remember that I work all things for good. Remember who I am. Look to Christ. See who He is. See the lengths that I went to to save you. And remind yourself of who I am. And then know for certain that I will not let any devastating thing go without purpose. For I am God. The antidote to despair is divine revelation. And then finally, God shows impossible grace. Look, if, if I was God, I'd be so frustrated with Elijah. I'd be like, and me, for, for that matter. Dude, have you not seen the things that I've done through you, for you? By your word, the rain stopped, and yet I provided food and water and shelter for you. When you prayed for someone to come to life, I made that happen. When you prayed to me to have fire come from heaven, I made that happen. And some little girl behind a brick wall says, oh, your life is in danger and you're fearful. Give me a break. Forget it. I'm moving on to the next guy. Or for me personally, um, Jason, you, you know the extent that I went to save you, right? You know that, that I hung on a cross for you, right? 
while you were far away and throwing, spitting at me and, and living your own life, you, you, know, you, you know that I came for you, right? So if I was God, that's, that's how I would be. But God is impossibly gracious towards Elijah. When Elijah lay down and slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel, a messenger of God, touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Not you, idiot. Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Do you see the grace of God here? Elijah, I see that you feel weak, you feel broken, you feel alone. So I'm going to send a messenger to you. He's not going to prod you with a stick. He's going to touch you. He's going to provide food for you. He's going to meet your daily, tangible needs. God does not sit on high and say, Elijah, you idiot, have you seen all that I've done? No, no, no. He comes. He sends a messenger. He says, here, eat, sleep, rest. Here's some water. Be refreshed. Now come and meet with me. Oh, the impossible grace of God. He meets Elijah's practical realities of humanity despite his doubt, despite his despair, despite his giving up. Oh, how often we can miss this when we engage those in despair. That we move to talking about the character of God or that oh, God will... will, will Use all of this to, to, to bring good. And as true as those things are, how, how often we miss them. I know in, in, in this particular order, I'm, I'm putting this grace piece after the God reveals himself piece. But, but the reality is, is that God, before he reveals himself, before he calls Elijah to himself, says, look, eat, sleep, drink, have some companionship. He meets him in his need. Now the journey from, uh, from, from where Elijah was to Horeb should have taken about 11 days, but it took 40 days for Elijah. So you can imagine that he's not there yet. And yet God sustains him in that. He gives him the food that he needs, the water that he needs to make it. Even though he probably stops and goes, I don't even know if it's worth it anymore. Should I go? He veers off the path. Maybe he spent a day thinking, yeah, the angel said that, but God has said this before. We don't know. We don't know why it actually took him 40 days to get there. It shouldn't have. It should have taken him a quarter of the time. But God sustains him through that. And then even though Elijah is despairing, God reveals himself to him in grace and mercy. And our expectation is, is that Elijah moves away joyful. But scripture isn't quite so cut and dry. Elijah actually responds half-heartedly. God called him to anoint two kings and to anoint Elisha. Uh, but 2 Kings 8 tells us that Elisha actually 
anoints or gives Hazael the uh, indication that he would be king. 2 Kings chapter 9 says that Elisha anoints Jehu, not Elijah. And even in our passage in 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah half-heartedly anoints Elisha. It's like he just walks by, throws his cloak on him, keeps walking, and Elisha comes after him. He's like, just, 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 just wait. I'm in the middle of doing something. Can you let me say goodbye, and then I'll come with you? And Elijah's like, what's it to you? Sure, whatever. We don't get the sense that Elijah is completely full, and I love that. Too often in the church, we think that our Christian lives ought to be so full of joy and happiness that we come with plastic smiles and all is good. Even though we know who God is, we know that he might work uh, in this in some way, shape, or form, but man, it is hard. So Elijah doesn't skip away from an encounter with God being like, Yay, Jesus! And yet, God's grace stays with him. His ministry does continue, although different. And then the most amazing thing happens. The most amazing thing. We skip all the way to Matthew chapter 17, verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took him, Peter, and James, three disciples, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun. And his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah. Talking with him. Both of these men longed to see the people of God turn from their grumbling, from their wicked ways. Moses wanted to be in the promised land, but could not go in. Elijah wanted to see the people's heart turned, but could not see that happen. And you can imagine a glint in Jesus' eye as he transfigures himself as the God of glory who's come to save not just Israel, but the world. He turns to Elijah. He says, I, I didn't just come to show Israel that I was God. My plans were much bigger than that. And you get a front row seat now you can understand that every tribe, every tongue, every nation was my goal. And I can just imagine tears running down Elijah's face as he recognizes that the providence of God, that the plan of God, that the character of God is so much grander than he could possibly imagine. And the, the mercy and grace that he felt that he, even though in his in his brokenness, in his nature like ours, did not understand what God was doing in these hard, legitimately hard moments as a light bulb moment that says, oh God, you are so good. Your plan was so much grander than mine. And thank you, thank you for including me in that. Oh, that you would see that as you face the 
devastatingly difficult circumstances you face. The mercy and grace of Jesus Christ would visit you in those moments, that you would be reminded of God's goodness towards you and that he has not forgotten you, that he will never leave you or forsake you and that he promises that everything will work for the good of those who are called according to his purposes and who love him. And that you are sealed in him and that one day you will look in his face and it will all make sense and experience the impossible, the impossible grace of God as you trudge through life. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for this amazing grace, and I pray, God, that that would rest in our hearts today. I miss our suffering. I miss the difficulty that we face as we long to see your righteousness and your goodness come into our hearts and into our lives, God. I pray that you would meet us in our weakness and our struggle. In Jesus' name, amen.